This podcast is sponsored by Uncana, trusted natural solutions. Uncana is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran-owned and operated, the Uncana team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncana is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code MENTORS4MIL the number four, M-I-L, at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. Before we get into 2013 and the events and stuff that led you here on this show, first off, I want to say thanks for joining us here on the Mentors Military Podcast. And Scott, it's awesome to get you back on the show again. It seems like it's been forever since you've been on here as a co-host. So um, welcome to both of you guys. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Yeah, man. Getting back to your basic roots and everything, you'll have to tell us what led up to the events of 2013. So what led you to get into the British Army in the first place? Um, being in an era where, as kids, you would grow up going out and about with your friends down the woods, making camps, um, getting like a branch and snapping it, the twigs of it so it resembled like a... a a weapon of some sort, like a machine gun. And then you'd play like armies and and stuff like that. And then, you know, you would uh, see your dad on a Sunday afternoon watching a war film on the TV. And it might have been in black and white, but you were like kind of so fixated on, you know, like war kind of films. Well, I was personally. And uh, that kind of led me into a way where I thought, I want to be in the army, and then obviously I saw an Arnold Schwarzenegger film, and I was thinking, <laughs> I want to be, I want to be him. He has unlimited ammunition, and it just as I went through school and um, got to the age where I could apply for the British Army, I, I did that, and it was the best choice I've ever made in my life. And if I could do it all again, I would. Yeah, how old were you at the time? Um, I, I applied when I was 17, but when I physically joined training, I was a, a month in past 18-year-old. So I personally believed I joined at a, a, a suitable age. Um, you're a, a young man. You're, you've got years ahead of you, and you can make decisions yourself. Um, and, you know, you don't need any adult supervision, or etc. So... Me, personally, I felt I joined at the correct age. Mm-hmm. When you went into the uh, British Army, what was your occupation at that time frame when you first enlisted? Um, I joined the infantry, so I joined the parachute regiment. Um, I initially was going to join the Royal Marines of the Royal Navy, but at the time there was like a, a certain height requirement and you had to be good at maths. Well, I was neither going to be a Marine, and I, I'm glad that was the decision um 
that stopped me from joining the Marines. No disrespect to them, just a bit of good old parachute regiment and Royal Marines uh, banter throughout the years. Um, but yeah, I was one of the, the lightest and smallest paratroopers to go through training. And it felt like I had something to prove, not just to myself, but to others that I could, you know, do it just as much as you. Yeah. So what is your height? I'm only five foot three, so I'm like <laughs> 160, one, one, was it 160 meters or something like that, whatever. Yeah. I, yeah. I just go off on foot and inches, mate. But yeah, good. Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the tallest. I'm not the tallest out there. And when you say another guy, well, most paratroopers aren't really tall anyways because they've got to jump out of an airplane. There's no point being too too uh, high because you lose a half an inch each time you drop right (laughs) yeah 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 i I actually joined i actually joined i was six foot but doing doing parachute jumps with heavy weight and carrying (laughs) heavy burgans on my backs compressed my spine and and uh yeah um i felt like i had something to prove um so yeah how long uh, were you in the british army in the parachute regiment I was in for six years. Um, I would like to have done um, a lot longer, but the way my life path, if you want to call it that, um, a few of the guys that I befriended whilst in the military, they were like going into private security. And you hear the stories and then they get in touch with you and say, oh, it's not bad. Do you, do you fancy doing it? I did my course with this company, get yourself on it. And it just got to the stage where I thought, I've done I've done I've done my time in the army. I'm now wanting to do something total different. And that's when I decided to jump ship, so to speak. And I went into maritime security. Obviously, I am trained for the, the land-based close protection. I made sure that I I didn't just put all my eggs in one basket and focus on one thing. I, I, I focused and spread my feelers on both parties. And the maritime was really booming at that uh, moment of time. So they gave me the opportunity um, to work on the ships more so than, say, Afghanistan, Africa or Iraq, etc. So not a bad decision. I don't regret it at all. Um it, it, it is what it is. You, you, one minute you wake up and you go, I want a new challenge. And I definitely got some sort of new challenge. What were the events that kind of led up to that day? You know, um, were you performing security on a specific ship? And, you know, tell us about that situation. Um, we had ceased operations, so we weren't operating doing any uh, client vessels at all. We were on our holding uh, vessel, which is the company's own vessel. Uh, it just basically saves money and time arranging uh, with an agent on land and paying the extortionate prices that the the ports would charge to you know hold your weapons and equipment and paying for a, a vessel to come and collect you off a client vessel and take you on the land, and then you've got to pay for hotels. So some t- our, it was our way of our company trying to save money in a way. So not all not all the time you would go on land as well, but we had a vessel down on the, the coast of India, and we 
coming down from uh, the old man, we were told we were going to be boarding that. So um, we're on that vessel for a few days and then the company arranged with uh, agent in Tamil Nadu in India, Southeast India, um, for fuel and provisions. So I'm just, you know, a crew member, so to speak, or passenger, if you want to class me. I'm, I'm not doing anything. Um, sunbathing, fishing, you know, just chilling out for me next job. Right. Um, and then we were taking on uh, fuel on the 11th of October, 2013. I went to bed. We were kind of, I wouldn't say rudely awakened, but we hadn't been asleep so long. And we were informed that we had been boarded by the Coast Guard um, and we were being escorted at gunpoint. This is the Indian Coast Guard. Yeah, the Indian Coast Guard. um, They had their weapon on their vessel on shore. we don't know if, if they were manning it. You couldn't really tell. But they were keep going around circulating our vessel, making sure it was going to port and that we weren't going to try and take them on or try and escape, which would have been the stupid suicide mission trying to attempt that. But being professionals, you comply. And uh, we went to the port. And from the, I, I, I was in a bit in inquisitive mood. I said, so where were we? Oh, well, this far away from land. Surely we, we would have been at the port by now. Yeah, that's what I thought. So why are we going so slow? I have no idea. So we, it was, we were going like two knots to port. It hmm. took hours and you're in, you just think, why are we going so slow? Yeah. And the reason why we went so slow is because we had a welcome committee. And I must have easily counted over 50 people on that port side. A lot of people were, were like workers milling around. There was a lot of media. They were quite uh, out in the open with their cameras and etc. And there was quite a lot of... Uh, people in suits well a lot of high-ranking government officials or police officials maritime in india they always seem to wear white shirts the males anyways and the women nice brighty looking saris so we were thinking why if we've just been like apprehended how is there so many people at this port Things aren't adding up. So you do start and think what on earth is going on. But once we got to the port, it was just absolute mayhem. And so at this point, you guys really had no clue what was going on. You guys weren't informed by the Coast Guard that entered the ship as to what the problem was and why you were being escorted to the port. I'm assuming... yeah, yeah. so at this point, you guys are just being taken to some location. You're seeing all these people standing out there, and it's all bizarre. And yet the fact that they took you at gunpoint, it almost sounds like there's a welcome committee that's there, like it's going to be more of a festive event than it is something that you did wrong. 
Yeah, um, you could say it was a seizure exercise. You could say we were set up. I'm 100% in right in saying we were set up. There's absolutely no way some of them companies that came onto that vessel could have gotten to Tamil Nadu from Mumbai in that short space of time. Not in a not unless India have developed a time machine or a teleporting device. There's absolutely no way this has been organised and they've just gone right. Everyone's in place. Get them now. Hmm. It's not like we were hiding. We were just at anchor waiting for fuel and provisions. We were doing no wrong. We were doing what we led to believe we were doing and is taking fuel and provisions and then we'll go back out to uh, deep our waters and conduct uh, more maritime ex- uh, exercises and uh, climb vessels. And But that wasn't to be. <laughs> as soon as we got into port side, we had to literally stop people getting on the vessel because they would have capsized it because from my experience in India, they have no idea on health and safety whatsoever they they literally would have piled onto that vessel capsized and gone what happened so we were like look who are you give me your identification and we'll allow you on the vessel don't just say you're tom dick and harry and show us nothing because you're not getting us on this vessel i don't care who you say you are so we you know and then there was a a lot of people in the group going, "Oh, we'll just let them on." You, they're gonna, you're gonna create more mass confusion. I'm thinking, no, because if we let everyone on, we're gonna capsize. And what? Uh, and who are these people we're letting on? They've not identified themselves. Like in, say, in the UK, we would always, always show our ID and, mm-hmm. and say, "I'm such and such." There's my ID. Prove who I am. There was none of that till we started enforcing it, and then we we're writing people's names and the ID, the ID, what they've got, just to keep track on who is on this vessel. It was just pandemonium. It was like a circus, and we were the prize to watch. Now, was this military that was trying to enter the vessel, or just all sorts of uh, people? It was police. It was maritime naval uh, companies. There were certain organisations from as far as Mumbai, hmm. um, and they were all thinking, "Can we get a slice of this cake?" And then, as we spent six days portside, so that was enough days for a, we'll, you know, we'll let right this company. You can come onto the vessel. You can. We will show you the weapons all locked in the pelly boxes. We will count the ammunition. We will show that everything is in order, paperwork. And then company after company were like, there's nothing here. There's nothing here. There's nothing here. And they started leaving. And then the local boys, Q Branch, they were thinking, well, we're going to look like a bunch of fools now. So they just out of out of wisdom just went, we found weapons. What do you mean you found the weapons? We've just showed you them. Yeah. Like we showed the previous companies and all that. How you found the weapons? And then 
they're saying the weapons are illegal, but not all 35, just six of the weapons. But the six weapons that they said were illegal were actually in Mumbai and paperwork going with them, saying they're A-OK. And it, it was just like, obviously, it was the beginning of a four-year nightmare. And you had to, I can only tell people how it went and it does kind of blow people's mind because the, the thing I'm exaggerating, the thing I'm making it worse than what it is, I'm not, I can't because when you listen to what I say or read my book, people will then go, I can't believe that happened. I went, never can I, but it did. At this point, you guys still don't know why you're being held there, but you're starting to put the pieces together based on what the authorities are saying is that, okay, it's six weapons. They're trying to come up with something that they can hold you there longer. Were they taking you guys off the vessel at this point and, and taking you into custody or, or is that something well, that happened next? Um, the, the morning of the 18th of October, 2013, um, they, they arrested us, but they didn't arrest us. They said, you're going to the hospital for checkup. Mind, I would have preferred if they said, right, we are, are going to arrest you on... These charges, yeah. These charges, et cetera, et cetera. Let's go down to the police station. Right. But they didn't. They lied. So straight away, we knew, hang on, this. what else is in store? They've lied straight away. They've gone, going to hospital for checkup. I was like, but why do we need to go to the hospital for? Because they couldn't see it. They are arresting us. They couldn't. I don't know why, but that's how they got us. So we, as professionals, we all got our uh, uniform on to represent the company. And we all boarded the police buses. However, we couldn't take our watches, our belts, our phones. People couldn't take their wedding ring, reading glasses, and people are thinking, hang on, what kind of hospital are you taking me to? Obviously, we're not stupid. We knew we're getting arrested and they and the, the want uh, less uh, items to take off us. Um, so the TDO, which is the tactical deployment officer, who, the guy who's in charge of the uh, security detail, he basically got all on the vessel, on the deck side, and basically said, right, now is the time to ring your families and tell them what's going on. Obviously, during them days, the fam we have been in in uh, contact with our families and the Foreign Commonwealth Office of the British government, informing them um, the proceedings and what's going on. But there wasn't really an, a lot to really say. There was the typical uh, duff, false news articles that we were going to be selling weapons to fishermen, we were going to be doing a Mumbai-style attack on a nuclear power plant in Tamil Nadu. And when you've got your own dad on the phone to you and he's saying, uh, Nick, we're, we're reading these articles online. Um, you're not up to anything bad, are you? You, you can tell me I'm your dad. On I was like, Dad, I'm here to protect I'm not a criminal. And he was like, right, that's fair enough. And then during the time difference, um, on the 18th, it was like 7.30, near enough 8 o'clock in the morning that they were getting us bustled to 
be removed off the vessel, I uh, I rang home and I rang my sister um, during the obviously the early hours of UK time, um, being four and a half hour four and a half hours uh, behind at the time. She never answered, so my mum answered instead because um, I, I, I then rang her and. Um, that was the last phone call I was able to have with my mum before she suffered a double aneurysm because her, her speech is quite impaired and at the minute and it will never be the same. So that for me is a, like a, a massive sucker blow. Like I felt like nothing could get any worse. Um, telling your family that you never know when you're going to see them. You never know when you're going to speak to them again. And then you, you obviously say you love them and um, I'll speak to you later. And I, no sooner, as I put the phone down, my sister rung us back and I said to my sister, I said, get in touch with the British government now. The, pardon me French, the shit's gone down. And she knew exactly. She knew exactly. Um, we were carted. Blues and twos screeching media hanging out of the vans trying to take pictures on from the port to the police station god knows what the locals must have been thinking they must have been thinking wow what's going on this never happens in my town but they made it bigger than ben her these people it was unbelievable they got uh, to the police station and we were like this is a funny looking hospital isn't it (laughs) they were Well, they didn't allow the company agent to act as a interpreter for us. No one from the embassy was allowed to see us, apparently. We were on our own, getting screamed and shouted at by people who could hardly speak English. Sign this or we'll ruin your lives. And we're looking at a blank piece of paper. And I'm thinking, sign what? And then they would try and put a little spiel on, think, oh, we'll sign this and you'll be going back to the, the ship in a, a few days. And we're like, we ain't going back to no ship in a few days. We're not that stupid and we're definitely not that gullible to believe your absolute nonsense. Um, but it was, we weren't fed. We were given, I think, a bottle of water each. It was a long, hot, tiring, frustrating day, and it was it was near enough getting to six p.m. and they wanted us to get to court so they could chuck us in prison. However, the court was closed the time we got there, so we'll, we all walked around the back. Some bloke came out in a suit from behind the court and muttered a few words, and the next minute we were back on the bus. And then we were on our way to prison, uh, Palam County Prison. We stopped at the roadside, and yet again, sign this, and you'll go to the vessel in three days. A blank piece of paper. Um, and we were just thinking, what on earth is going on here? But... We, they weren't budging. They were, the problem is, if you upset, 
Indians, from in my experience, they just dig their head in the sand. You better come. You're better off just comply with them, and everything's uh, happy. So we all just signed this blank piece of paper. I screw, just scribbled a, a signature. You know, people were writing Mickey Mouse and God knows what. There was just a bit of power on their part, um, seeing if we would comply. And then we got to prison, and it was dark, it was humid, the mosquitoes were out, and it was a prison built during British rule. So when they found out that there was six British coming to stay at their luxurious hotel, you could understand how happy they felt. Especially we we are in an anti-British rule state of Tamil Nadu in India. Um, Many Indians during my time there told me the older generation and government do not like and can't grasp that British rule, used to rule India. Madness, I know. But it was quite daunting seeing these big, massive iron doors and the guards stood outside, and you're just thinking, am I about to enter hell? And how many were there on the crew, other than you six, you know, that were in the security um, detail? Was, there was 30, 35 altogether, so 25 security, 12 crew. Um, so that broken down, there was 12 Indians, there was 14 Estonians, three Ukrainians, and six British. Um, and it was a big number, a, a very big number. It was um, quite hard for the authorities to do simple things as just write your name from your passport. People, all everyone's names was just. If that was in a court of law, the judge would have just gone. Well, there's no, no there's no one in this courtroom of them names, throw them out. Yeah. Or in India, in Indian court, they can do what they please. Nick, you mentioned um, earlier that when you was um, portside, uh, there'd been communications with the Foreign Commonwealth Office and you told your sister to, to get in contact with the government. So from the point where you was taken to the um, supposed hospital and you knew that you was being arrested and, and processed through the system. Was there any contact from UK authorities? Uh, and you said the embassy weren't allowed to enter the um, the police station, but was there any contact at all from anybody in UK authorities? Um, when we were still portside on the vessel, there had been brief emails informing the British government that we are potentially could be in a situation where we may need um, consular assistance. So they, um, the nearest consular uh, was Chennai, um, and we were in Tutakarin. Um, uh, so whether they, they, they were going to get, whether they got down to the port and uh, got turned away, it's, a, it's something that we will never find out. Um but what we were told is they were refused to see us. But when we were in the Palam Courty prison, we did get a visit from the consular staff. They were coming into the prison and they basically just said, right, 
tell us what's going on. And we just went, boom, sort this out now. <laughs> you know, sort it out. Because what are we supposed to do? We've just showed them everything. And yet they think we're up to something that we don't even know what, what, what we're up to. Uh, it's like they're, they're just making it up as they go. And I don't know why. We do not know why. Um, but we will find out the reasons why as the months and years go by. Um, but at, at, at the uh, early days, it was just your head was spinning. You didn't know what the hell was going on. Your family's in your thoughts. You're 5,000 miles from home. One minute you were doing your job, next minute you're in Indian prison. And you're thinking... What on earth is going on? The conditions that you guys were in, obviously, weren't that great. But also, as I understand it, you told of a story where, you know, at one occasion, the even the uh, prisoners inside there decided to um, take out their frustration at you and use whatever available weapon they had, whether it was crutches or whatever the case, to try to, to hit you guys and, you know, saying things to you and all of that. So for whatever reason, there must have been some kind of message that was sent to fellow prisoners as well as the media that, that something was wrong, that you guys had planned to overthrow this government. Oh, the, we, you know, we befriend, befriended a few um, Indians whilst in prison and they would uh, translate as best as they could with their local newspapers. There was an English newspaper, but the local Tamil newspaper would always have us in nearly every day. The The Hindu, which is the, the English national paper of uh, India, didn't always, unless it was something big. And we would always find out, and it just, you just, you know, you, it's like you're going around the prison with eyes in the back of your head because these uneducated thugs, prisoners that are have got nothing to let, you know, nothing to lose whilst serving their prison time, won't think twice about trying to do something just to get brownie points or look make a name for themselves. Little did they know we weren't the kind of outfit to be messed with, especially when you looked at some of the Estonians especially the russian Estonians, they were quite a, like big, big guys. And I think that if they start, really got into a fight, they would be chucking scrawny little men around into walls and it would have been a, a sight for sore eyes. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't really get to that extreme. Yeah, there was stones thrown at where verbal abuse you know it was verbal abuse you couldn't understand it but you know it was um and it was just a a hard time trying to get a foothold on things um but you just have to deal with it as best as you can and being ex-military really really helped the situation for myself i take it three days later you weren't released no, we got transport. <laughs> we got transported to uh, Central Prison Two in Chennai, Puzal. So we did three days in Palamkoti Prison, and then we would do a further six, nearly six months in the remand prison. Um, 
we nearly got bail before Christmas, but then they turned. Then they went to the High Court and said the weapons are illegal. So, yeah, the obviously we didn't know the reason why, but during the trial we found we find out why we got bail denied, and it was because the collector of evidence couldn't be bothered to listen to the uh, ballistics expert's report because he had too much police pressure to put the charges on us. So they rejected our bail appeal. And then five days before Christmas, um, the last embassy visit before Christmas in 2013, um, one of the guys had already had a visit and he was kept to the side um, by the, the girls from the embassy and I was told Nick can you just hang hang fire at the end and I was sat there beaming I thought if someone from your family's come to see us I was like wow and then it just felt like the whole world just opened and swallowed us you know when you get a letter and words just jump out you don't even know what the whole letter says but these words jump out and it was my sister basically telling us about what happened to my mum, uh, that she's suffered a double aneurysm and they had to do life-changing uh, brain surgery on her to keep her alive. Um, and that just destroyed me. It knocked me for six. I was like, I'm innocent. I'm in a country on the half of the other side of the world being portrayed as a criminal and I've now been dealt with the most deadliest blows that I've ever had in my entire life. How do I deal with this situation in hand? And hmm. I remember walking, it was quite a walk from the jailer's office where we would have our meetings with our embassy to our compound. It was nearly like a mile walk because that prison's, it's huge. And I was holding my letter and I'm the, my eyes are filling up. I'm battling the red mist. I've got Indians f chucking stones at us, hurling abuse at us. I felt numb, absolutely numb. And I wanted to lose control. I, I was like, just let the red mist take control. But another part of me was saying, no, don't, because you'll make matters worse. And I finally got back to the compound and one of the Brit guys saw the state of us and just took us for a walk. And obviously I broke down, um, told him what had happened and I was just ready to throw the towel in. I was just like, you know, I've had enough. It's been, you know, October, December. It's been a couple of months and I'm ready to just throw the towel in. I've had, you know, I've had enough. Um, but something inside me, you know, letters from my family saying, don't give in, keep going, we'll get you out of there, we'll, you know, justice always prevails in the end. So I thought, let's crack on. Christmas, New Year went by. It was a new year. Let's get it done. Let's build our case. Let's take the fight to them. And everyone was, everyone was telling us, you cannot fight from the inside out. Well, 
how the hell are we supposed to get out? Because people on the outside didn't have anything. Yeah. So we had to, we had to basically fight from the the inside out because the company, yes, initially they got the lawyers, but then pissed about and refused to pay the lawyer. So there were the, so our families had to contribute their own life savings and money to pay for our lawyer to get our freedom. Like that's the company's job, not families. Did the you company's ever, job. Did you ever find out why the company decided to make that decision? No. So they um, never came back and said any reason, uh, justification. I understand, you know, it can be costly, but yet they put you in that situation. It was costly and they had plenty of work. Hmm. They could have, the, the, you know, there were at one point, because my sister was quite in with the media, etc. The company was getting in touch with my sister and saying, can you do like a, a, a play? We need to raise this money. And my sister was saying, Absolutely not. Any money that is raised will directly go to the lawyer, not you. And we never heard nothing from the company till we were getting bail. And there was all this ramifications with bail because they were scared in case we may flee the country. And so there had to be uh, things put into perspective, reassurances, that we weren't going to leave the country, etc. Uh, so we went on bail. We were uh, in April 2014. So I spent a Christmas, New Year and a birthday. My birthday is in March. So my sister came out to visit us June, March 14, 2014. And morale went high. She brought me a massive chocolate cake laced with alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> well, just getting bail must have been a promising thing, and the fact that you guys got out of uh, the place that you were at and being kept, and you know, you guys were in pretty pretty rough area. I mean, you had to make your own, find your own food. Basically, you had to make your own weightlifting gear and everything out of rocks. It looked yeah. like caveman stuff, and you know. <laughs> trying to work out and of course they'd come through and destroy those things every time you created them and then you know you'd create your gym equipment again and they do it over and over again and and so to finally get an opportunity to get away from that place in and of itself must have been a relief but then family and the whole situation that you went through nick that yeah that must have been a powerful moment yeah getting bail um was fantastic um finding out what we had to do. Um, the, mind when we got bail, the company came out and got where a nice hotel of the Radisson Blue to make a statement. And then that was short-lived because they went, oh, well, we can't afford to keep these in there, so we'll put you in a cheaper hotel. And then we we were like, I'll stay somewhere else because that hotel's like, bah, I, I wouldn't know. Even Indian, even the Indians as the group were put, turning their nose to it. That's how bad it was. Wow. Um, and so we uh, we ended up kind of just going, right, I'm going to this place. I'm going there. So we were dotted all around the city. Some some of the guys stayed together. I shared a, um, a hostel room with two Estonians and one Brit guy. But as the months go by, 
tensions can rise. You know, we're all missing our families and little squabbles can happen. So we end up breaking up because you, you want your own space at the end of the day. I've, I've just spent a month on a job with three guys. I've then spent like over a co- six months with, living with these guys. I now want a bit of my own space, but um, it kind of done that. Sure. It kinda, I was on my own for the first time in a while in a different country, and I, I kind of hit rock bottom. I was like, oh, my head was a mess, and I was always on the phone and Skype and to my family. Um, me, I had to wait for the time difference so me, me sister could go to my mum's from work and so and Skype her so she could see me, I could see her as a bit of a, um, a way of keeping my spirits high and showing to me mum that I'm, I'm, my well-being is fine and she can see our youngest child not giving in and chucking the towel in because she never chucked the towel in when she was on the operating table. She f- pulled through and as a, a little fighter and herself and I think basically she's thrown that into my sister and myself, so to speak. So, yeah, it's it's it was definitely on one hand reveal, uh, you know, like amazing feeling but it was like, right, I'm not in prison anymore. I want to catch one, but I can't. Yeah. You're in that halfway mode kind of thing, you know? Yeah. yeah. You're now playing the waiting game. Yeah. And that's, I think, the time where we w- weren't in prison, it's like a, you're stuck in limbo and you're, you're not you're not getting paid your wages or so any money for a hotel, food, just to go out and try and socialise because you've got to remember if you sit in your hostel room and sulk, you're going to be down in the dumps. So you've got to kind of uh, go around. So you go, you know, jump in a tuk-tuk and go flying around the city and go to the mall and just try and take a bad situation, try and get some good from it. You know, yes, it's costly at times, um, but fortunately I, I had, my own wages um, as well. So it wasn't too much of a financial burden at that time on my family. During this time frame, you know, were you getting an opportunity to really find out a lot of information and did you feel a lot more confident when you were, you know, out on bail and even living in the hostel that my freedom is going to come close because I've got, you know, the consulate, I've got the embassy behind me, I've got attorneys now. It just feels a whole lot better than not getting really any information when you were inside the prison? Um, during, the, during them months, um, signing bail, and then July 2014, the case got quashed. Therefore, the police have 90 days to appeal to Supreme Court. So our case is at the High Court. We've won, technically. No charges against me. I am technically a free man. In Indian law, and we had two of our lawyers sign it, date it, so we could have our meeting with in the embassy and have people come from New Delhi uh, to Chennai and say, look, get us out of this country now. They are illegally holding us against our will. 
it states in Indian law during the 90-day appeal window, we do not need to be in India. The response from the British government was, we will wait and see what happens. And we just went, well, we're going back to prison then, or we are going to trial, because that is what the outcome will be if you don't get your arse into gear. And they're like, we will just see what happens. I'm thinking, you are not dealing with these like what we are. We've seen how these people act. They do it at the last minute because they can get away with it. So there's three months, more three months of financial burden. And then it gets to the nitty gritty where you're thinking, should I start packing me bag? And you're like, hmm. I remember packing my bag to only unpack it when on day 88 they went to Supreme Court and went, there, there's our appeal. And you've just gone, it felt like someone had just run up to you and just kicked you in the stomach. You were two days away from going home. That It would have been over. They just ran up and just wellied you in the stomach and gone, take that. Ha, in your face, and you've got to think of how the family in the UK had felt when the, my sister is now, I would say, spearheading a diplomatic approach to the government. We were now we were named the Chennai Six by the British government and the media. My sister was in the media, getting the government to do more. And this is how they repaired her. They repaired us. We will wait and see. How do you think the families felt? We just went, where life goes on, at least we're not in prison. So let's just, you know, take that as a, a, a pro and the rest as a con because you want to go home, obviously. And it's going to be more of a financial weight because in India, things take time. But the fam, you know, my sisters and having to like hold back the tears when talking to the media, saying the government were incompetent to end this. So you can understand where the family's coming from. Us, on the other hand, we're just ex-military and we're just like. Where we've been here before in our military times where one good thing was going to happen, where you were about to finish at 12 o'clock on a Friday and go home and then someone turns around and goes, ah, we need to do weapon clean. Oh, could you not have told us that at 8 o'clock in the morning, not when we're about to go home for the weekend? That's my weekend's gone to rats. Cheers. So that's how it, being ex-military, you deal with it. Mm-hmm. You put a brave face on make a joke out of it but deep down you're hurting and that's what it was um and then i think it was uh january next year no sorry july the following year when it went to supreme court so july 2015 yeah so you've got all that weight for the the, the show that happened at the uh, Supreme Court, so there's nearly a year and a bit of financial burden on the families. And living, you were still living outside then, Nick, was you? Yeah, 
I was living in a hostel. I I met an Indian girl out there. Um, I had I had to just get on with my life, and she was a rock, and she'll always have a place in my heart for what she'd done, and I still keep in touch with her today. And um, she kind of broke my boredomness up, and obviously we became uh, in a relationship, and um. She was really a big rock for me. So we get to the Supreme Court. It became a split faction. Um, we were like, well, we can't afford our lawyer. So the government, so the company that we worked for went, well, we'll provide a lawyer. Great. So you got the prosecution. We've got our lawyer. And then the Estonians, in their wisdom, decided to get a lawyer. So, because in, in the UK, I, I don't know how it works, but uh, a lawyer can talk whenever he or she is able to speak. But in India, it's all like on caste system. So just because he may be a, a higher ranking judge than uh, or lawyer than him, because he's a, diff, a lower caste, the other lawyer will get the chance to speak before him. It's absolutely mental. So the Estonian's lawyer was able to speak more before our lawyer and the judge just went, right, the police are saying the weapons are illegal. You're saying no, they're not. And what were you here for? Fuel and provisions. Right, okay. I know that because you've been maintaining that from the beginning. We were get we were up to no good, just fuel and provisions. But the police were saying so. There's two. Then the Estonians, in their own wisdom, go. Their lawyer goes. I don't know why the guys were there. They're just passengers on a vessel. Well, from you turning around and saying I don't know why they were there, the judge stopped listening because he knows ex exactly what to say. You're telling one, me one thing. You're saying another thing, and mm. you're saying another thing. Let's get to the bottom of this. Let's have a trial. When the judge in the Supreme Court said, let's have a trial, the police were jumping around, back doing backflips, slapping each other's hands, bumming each other, like not literally, but smacking. <laughs> they were basically, they were in hysterics because they knew the court was back in the lion's den where it began. Yeah. When that attorney when, said that, made that statement, he basically opens up the lion's den again because he made a blanket statement that he probably didn't even realize that came out of his mouth would come and be interpreted the way it was. You know, well, we don't know why they're is, here. We don't. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's a, probably a normal statement, but in a court yeah, of the law, is, and, you know, yeah. If he just turned around and said, my representatives were on that vessel as passengers, and the vessel itself was not conducting anything apart from fuel and provisions. That would have been over. That's two against one. But to give the three different answers, the judge had you left him with no you left you left him with no reason to not do a trial. Mm. It was there for the taking. It was there. We could have gone home again 
yet incompetent people could not be bothered from the Estonian government to inform their lawyer correctly and say, just say this, nothing more. Say that, shut up, sit down. That's all they had to say. Mm. We were there for fuel provisions, Your Honour. Nothing more. That is it. But no, couldn't help herself. You've just opened a can of worms. The police are now thinking, we're going to get them in prison again. But we're going to do it absolutely fantastic. What we're going to do, we're going to do a trial. We're going to make it out so fantastic to where you think you're going to go home. We're then going to send you for Christmas, get you back in on January the 11th, 2016, and then we're just going to go, bang, prison, bye. Because that's what happened. I felt violently sick during that trial, listening to the lies when our lawyers were cross-examinating the witnesses. When... You've got the collector of evidence turning around saying, well, if I'd seen the ballistics expert report, I wouldn't have put the charges on the men. So you put the charges on the men anyways without even seeing it. But, okay, fair enough. But the, the trial was done so we, in our little worlds, thought we were going home. It was... It was shatterproof. They didn't have a leg to stand on. Even before we went for Christmas recess, our we we had a little brief off our legal team, and they said, "Gentlemen, we've done everything that we could possibly do. There is nothing more. I feel a, a strong acquittal here." And we were like, "We we knew we saw it." We couldn't disagree. We were like, that's great. See you on the 11th of January. And then we got there. Um, I was the last to turn up because the media was absolutely bombarding us. I was still asleep and without waking us up because they weren't too sure of what time the actual court it was uh, starting. Mind it never started on, any, on uh, time anyways, but everyone was there. Estonian embassy, British embassy, all of us at the back of the courtroom, prosecution on the left, our team on the right, as you're looking, judge and his little minions, typewriter girl, everyone correct, nerves, sweating, because I can't even remember if there was fans and if there were, they were just blowing hot out. It was, it was like that. Mm. You didn't know what was going to happen. You, you you felt confident that it's ending. I think I don't think anyone would have believed the decision that f was given. But in the back of your mind, you always thought, "What if that is the decision?" You never went one hundred percent. That's us going home. Never in my mind I ever thought like that but I did feel confident because why wouldn't I I've just seen the trial I've had updates of the uh, the other guys when I wasn't present I had updates from my lawyers 
I then had to update my family for my family to tell the media to keep everyone t- singing off the same song sheet. What we didn't want is one person saying one thing, another person saying another, and you got people asking too many questions when there's no need to. Keep everyone to send, write one email and to send that email like that. Just forward it to everyone. Boom. Don't put your spiel on like some people did in the past. Keep everyone on the same level. And the trial went on. Obviously, it's all done in uh, Tamil, so we are requiring our legal team to inform us what's going on. Um, the judge didn't even say anything. One of his minions stood up and said something. And I remember our one of the girls from our embassy, obviously they in the British government, we always... You for re, put, uh, relations between two countries, we always hire um, the local people who have got good English-speaking education to work for the British government. So it's it's better and liaison ways. So our girls literally knew exactly what had just come out of his mouth, and they literally were in that motion. That the, the phone was ringing as it was coming out because they were ringing New Delhi and going. No, no, no. And we're just, we're like, what he said, what he said. And I've seen some scared people in my time. I've never seen a a man so scared till I saw our lawyer come towards us. He he must have shaked about 20 stone off him. Mm. (laughs) He was, he was scared because he's just, he's now having to deal a deadly blow in his eyes. And he turned and we're like, come on, what, what's he doing? What's he saying? What's, what's going on? And he, because we had a little recess and we got told to go back in for the decision. And he turned around and, you know, them animated gulp scenes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, it was like something like that. And, and we're like, come on, come on. Like proper eager eager children to get the sweets and they turned in, turned out to be sour sweets. Licorice. Blech. And he turned around and went, you've been sentenced to five years. And what? What? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry you've been sentenced to five years. And it just, it didn't really hit me. But I had to compose myself after digesting that news because I wasn't too sure if my legs were going to work. I thought I was just going to collapse and just go, I can't deal with this. But I didn't. I composed myself. Um, we kind of exited the courtroom and we were speaking with the embassy girls and we are going, so what now? And they were like, well, you got some paperwork to fill in and then you're getting... They're trying to decide whether you're going to go back to Palam Courty for the evening and then go up to Chennai um, oh, God. the next the next day. Um, but as time was getting on, and in the journey from Tutakarin to Chennai, they opted to just chuck us on a bus straight 
to uh, Chennai. Um, but in that courtroom, my phone was going absolutely berserk with the British media. I just answered them as, and I I wasn't too rude. I just said, you're going to have to speak to me, my sister. I can't talk at the minute. Sorry. Because I hadn't even told my family. Wow. I just put the media to one side. Um, I rung my sister because they had the media all at me, me, uh, me mum's house waiting. Me, my sister was going to me mum's get her all sorted for the media. All my family was going to be there. The media was going to be there. And I rung my sister and I said, Lisa, you need to get the mum's. It's not good news. And I heard like a little knock. I thought my sister had just collapsed. But she hadn't. She kind of was just scratching on the bench. And she says, what? Did, what, what, what? said, get the mams now. It's not good news. She went, right, okay. I'm going to ring dad and tell him. And then when you're ready, give us a ring back. So I rung me dad. I went, dad, it's not good news. He went, what? Obviously, a bit flowery uh, language was involved. He says, well, the weapons are fine. I went, Dad, I know that. But this is India. This is a corrupt state in India, and they can do what they please. Why are they doing this to us, to all of us? I have no idea, but I'm sure we'll find out. And that was pretty... My dad doesn't really show his emotions. I think the last time I... I've seen my dad show his emotions as when I went to Afghanistan. Um, it was shortly after the, uh, a group of, uh, I think they were Welsh guards or something. We all got kind of, it was the biggest uh, sitting of deaf, British soldiers' deaths in a war zone um, in Afghanistan. So as a, as a parent, you can imagine how they must feel knowing that their son or daughter is going to be going to that war zone and, you never know if they're going to come back or not. Um, but, and then obviously I, I spoke to my girlfriend at the time. I said, look, I've been convicted to five years. I don't expect you to hang around. And I know it's going to be hard for you. You don't really know us. You've only known us for like six months or so. Can you do me one favour? Can you pack me bags up in the hostel room and take them to the embassy, please? She went, okay, no problem. Um, and then obviously my sister rung us back and then she put us on loudspeaker on the phone and if I could have ripped the judge's throat out, I would have because hearing me mum after telling her that I'm not coming home and I'm going to prison for five years, which then would take the tally to seven and a half years, thereabouts, in total, to hear her screaming like a, a wounded animal is its quite a disturbing feeling. But I kept, I kept calm as best as I could I didn't want to show them that they've, they've beat me by lashing out because that's not going to solve it. 
No. That kicking off, being abusive, it's only going to make matters worse. Um, at the end of the day, I'm a professional. I've been dealt with a, a, a bad, bad decision, a wrong, wrong decision in my eyes. Um, but I have to deal with it. I have to crack on. I have to do it for my family. Most importantly, I have to do it for myself. Um, we got on the buses from the courtroom. Um, we actually did go to the hospital. <laughs> that, and the only reason why we went to the hospital is because they, they were still in the process of not knowing which prison to send me to. So they just wanted to just away from all the the court scenes and because there was Indian media and there was uh, UK media, like their Indian representatives from the BBC and ITV, ITV etc. outside speaking to her and all that. And I remember before getting on the bus, uh, I made a, a plea with the, the Prime Minister, Dave Cameron, at the time, saying, get us out, you know, we don't deserve this. Obviously, that fell on deaf ears, obviously. Um, uh, and then uh, we went on that journey from Tutakarin up to Chennai, and it was a horrible feeling, a sickening feeling, being on a cramped bus, knowing you've just been sentenced to five years, and all you can think about is your family. But then you've got to keep moving a weapon out of the way because you don't know what the weapon state is and they're fall- the police are falling asleep and they've got weapons and you're thinking, you know, if, if anything's going to get worse, it's going to get wo- it's going to go worse on this journey. It did. We had a tyre blowout and we nearly skidded off the road. I think we're not even going to get to prison without bloody having an accident. It was just a nightmarish day for everyone. Um, and obviously the, the, the following morning we got to the prison and it was like, well, yeah, we are again. Round two. Wow. Let's fight. Let's, let's crack on. Um, obviously, we're next door to the Raman prison, um, Central Prison 1, Puzal. Um, it was a total different prison, the way it was. It's all similar, you know, conditions, but how they treat you, etc. because you were convicted, it's total different. Um, we were able to get food compared to the previous prison where we had to sometimes, I wouldn't say starve, but there wouldn't be enough food to go around. We would only be really eating one meal a day and biscuits and crap maybe the odd bit of fruit um, a day and we all lost a lot of weight. We, Our immune systems dropped. We got D&V, uh, diarrhea and vomiting. Um, we we did become ill in the first, the second prison. Yeah, there was times where we got ill as well, but you, you had, by that time, we had a massive support network around the world. I was receiving parcels and letters from people like from America, France, Canada, Australia, and that really keeps your morale high. And it just goes to show that you're not going unnoticed around the world. People are behind you fighting. That's all down to my sister. And 
how she conducted herself in front of the media and um, her plea for freedom, not just for myself, but for everyone. She wanted to do as much as she could physically to help get us our freedom. We all know it would have gone down um, either in the courtroom or a little bit of luck government intervention but um, from the times that went on like we had to get back into a routine uh, of prison life and that's when your army uh, training comes in you assess the situation you deal with it you overcome it and the many mental barriers and brick walls that you have to face, you've got to knock them down and keep plodding on. And um, I know it's it's not really used nowadays, but we had to crack on. Um, we can't really say that to people who suffer mental health, just crack on. But we had to crack on. That is the, the mindset and that we had to go through. It was just crack on. Will, you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. It will get closer. It will get brighter. And in every negative, there is a positive. You just got to keep driving, and one day it will come to an end. It must have been one hell of an emotional roller coaster, Nick. You know, with the 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 ups and and downs <laughs> at both ends of the spectrum. You know, with particularly with everything your family was going through back home uh, and all the families uh, of the guys and you know to to be in prison the first um, instance and then out on bail for just over two years i guess on the timeline uh, yeah. and then to be sentenced to to oh. what's going to be five more years oh uh, emotions unbelievably um so emotional now it's unbelievable um i'm glad that i don't have my anger emotion that's in pandora's box locked away i think that's the best place for it because i don't want to be rash and do anything silly um there is days where i do have down days where i feel down in the dumps and i never used to be like this and i don't care what anyone uh, says I and the other guys have gone through a four-year mental torture nightmare and that's yeah. what it was it wasn't physical it was mental and that's a lot worse because they knew what to do they wanted to break us and everything good it went straight back down mm. you couldn't cling on to some happy moments for too long before they w- realised you were you're having some morale in the disco. Nah, take that away from them. Um, we um, had an incident in the hospital, which I, I started. I'm, uh, I'm not proud of it. I let my emotions and they get the inside me and I kicked off and a couple of other lads helped. I didn't ask them to, but they came where crutches were flying around, chairs were flying around getting punched, you know, it could have really, really turned into something a lot worse. But then you're going to laugh, 
but we went into a comp. Excuse me, we went into so we're in a prison, so you can say we're locked down, anyways. But we're we're allowed to roam around the prison for twelve hours, six till six. So for for twelve hours of the day, we're allowed to roam around. The other twelve were locked in my cell, sleeping, etc. I just put us on a compound lockdown for three months. Ouch. So I was flavour of the months with the guys. <laughs> I was their best friend. So while everyone is so we couldn't go anywhere unless we could be escorted. It was for our safety. Um so if there was no guards we couldn't go anywhere. So we stuck in the compound literally for three months, unable to do anything, really. Which, when you put into the perspective of, say, lockdown during this pandemic, when people, I keep hearing, oh, I'm bored, I don't, I can't do this, I'm blah, I can't. I, I have to really bite my lip because I, I, I kind of think, lockdown, you have no idea what a proper lockdown is, but I do, and it's not nice. You feel like you can't do anything when you sat with everything around you that you could possibly do. You can sit and binge watch Netflix till your eyes bleed. I couldn't do that. I couldn't just pick up a phone and ring me family. You know, it, you know. So you put it puts life in perspective um, for what we're going through now in the whole uh, pandemic and lockdown and through my experience of of being in that situation and not giving in and and fighting through because I believed I could see that light at the end of the tunnel and a few of the other guys start to notice that and so when it became a court uh, situation I'm not a preacher I just don't want a group of guys feeling negative because it's so easy to feel negative. It's so easy to get down in the dumps and think you're family. But you've got to stay positive. And I wanted to spread positivity around the group. I wanted to say to them, look, don't be all doom and gloom. There is an outcome at the end of this. You know, some people were like, well, what if they don't let release what after five years? I'm thinking, he's just done 25 years for raping, murdering women, and he's getting released. So why would they not release us? And that was some of the guys' mentality. And I don't blame them for everyone. We all suffered in our own ways. Just I I couldn't have done it on my own. I had people's support, people writing to us. You know, my sister, when she would write a status on social media, she'd print off the, the comments section. So people, just random people who don't even know me from around the country, around the world, going... Come on, Nick, keep going, keep fighting, guys. Never give in. It must have been phenomenally hard, Nick, and I think you raise a, a really good point there about lockdown and what people see lockdown as now and, and you know, the, the resilience you guys had and what you went through. And I think in, in terms of if people are struggling out there now to read your book and get perspective on what lockdown is and things is, is is a really good thing for people so where can people find out about your book well yeah 
So this is my book, Surviving Hell. Um, if you're in the UK, um, you can get it from Waterstones online or go into their bookstore. Um, you can also find it in on Amazon. If you're around the world or, like say, in, just in America, you can buy it from Amazon itself. It's on uh, hardback, paperback and Kindle version. We are looking to try and get audio, but as the way this year has been going, a lot of things have been sure. uh, backlogged. So hopefully in the in the near future, whether it's early months of next year, later this year, we are trying to get audio book done. But yeah, they're, they're the, the main place. Amazon's like, everyone seems to be buying it from Amazon because everyone during lockdown was smashing Amazon and making him yeah. a very rich man. So if you're, if you're stuck at home and you're wanting to buy stuff for your lockdown and you want a good read, buy my book because it, it may help you get past the the nitty gritty and feeling down in the dumps during lockdown because I experienced my lockdown, I experienced my hell. And if you're going through tough times and you want to see how a, a family comes together and keep the spirit high and get to the finish line, then I think my books are it's a, a perfect read for that. Um, no, I think you're hundred percent right, mate. I mean, just from talking to you for uh, for for this episode, I, I think that's clear, and um, we'll certainly put the the links out on, on our social yeah. media because I don't think there's more of a relevant time for people to read a book uh, than than yours now, really. So definitely, the world's, the world's going through hell. Absolutely. I love the book Surviving Hell. Buy it and you, you never know. You may start and feel a bit more positive. Who knows? Nick, uh, I, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. And I, I hope that people will go and read the book and not only get insight into how this all ended and, you know, you're with us today and the surviving and the resilience and, and determination that obviously you and your family had through this horror ordeal. Uh, but you know, you coming forward and allowing us to, to speak with you about it. That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. 